Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Need expert advice on your family's health? Speak to us today at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a healthcare team that's always here for you at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy network. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show and before we meet our panel, let's have a look at the front pages. Before we get down to reality, there's a stunning picture on the front of the Sunday Times today and it's a model shows off one of a series of bold spring summer designs by Sean McGurr as the Dublin designer unveiled his debut collection for Alexander McQueen at Paris Fashion Week. So Sean McGurr is a guy from Sutton and he is the creative director now of Alexander McQueen, which is a huge um, accolade to, to get. We'll be talking about uh, Paris Fashion week later on actually and then to reality and there is a sense that that kind of normal business as usual is resuming at the front of the Sunday Times parties in war of words over housing targets so we're back to that and that's Daryl O'Brien versus Owen O'Brien um the Business Post is also housing and they're saying there's a high risk houses will not be built due to a dire water shortage. This is an unpublished report from an expert group to warn that the state's housing targets are in jeopardy. So that's another uh, area where infrastructure seems to be letting us down. Uh, the Sunday Independent has a poll and the headline they've taken out of that is that Michelle O'Neill is now the most popular leader in Ireland, rating 16 points higher, uh, that poll suggests, than uh, Mary Lou Macdonald. But they do say as well Sinn Féin's support is lowest since 2020. 21, and we'll come back to that. Uh, there's a story on the front of the mail today about a new role that was apparently taken up by a departing RTE executive 12 years ago. The Sunday World is leading with um, that uh, violent incident on Friday at the Under-14 All-Ireland Boxing Championships and you will have seen the footage from that uh, on the news. And they have a father of one of the fighters was slashed in the face with a machete. And there's a picture of him there actually from the CCTV of him defending himself with a chair against uh, someone with a slash hook. And uh, the son is leading with that story as well. Machete horror, brutal attack at kids boxing contests. And finally, the Murr is leading with, uh, there's a row in New York over whether the Gardaí should be allowed to take part in the St. Patrick's Day parade this year. Uh, so there you go. Now, our panel today, uh, Wendy Grace is a broadcaster with Spirit Radio. Tanya Ward is Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Bridget Laffin is the Chancellor of the University of Limerick. And Derek Mooney is a public affairs consultant, uh, former government advisor and uh, former Fianna Fáil strategist. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. Um, so you've all picked a piece in the Sunday Times uh, about Gaza, seven days that will shape the war in Gaza, and there are a lot of uh, moving parts in it. But Bridget, um, we've talked, you've been on here at various stages during this. I think people are finding it bizarre now that we're in a situation where the Americans are now dropping in um, meals to uh, yep. give to people who have had their lives destroyed by American 
armaments that are being given to Israel. Uh, but it, does it feel in one way as if, are they trying to put a floor on this? Have the Americans had enough? Did, they, did the incident the other day with the shooting of the, or shooting or otherwise of people trying to get stuff off the aid trucks, has it, has it shifted something here? So I think the Americans have been trying to put a floor on this from the beginning. Yeah. And they've been warning the Israelis time and time again. Blinken has been in and out, shuttle diplomacy. But it's been entirely ineffective. And I think it's uh, two reasons. Um, One, that the Jewish lobby in the United States remains extraordinarily powerful uh, and a democratic president is unlikely to completely disassociate from from that. Uh, And Biden finds himself now caught in supporting Israel on the one hand, but recognising the humanitarian disaster that we see unfolding. Uh, I do think that we're... We're as I think there will be a ceasefire this week. It will be for the duration of Ramadan, so uh, a long time. And the hope would have to be that it's not a temporary ceasefire, that, that, that this is over. But what it also, and it's a reminder to all of us, that no external force can predetermine the domestic politics of another country easily. And so within Israel, you have this extraordinary conflict between the far right and also Netanyahu, who is has been a disaster for his country. And who's trying massively to unpopular in Israel ma- now in polls. Oh, I think he's he gone. had about 20% or something. He's approval. gone. Yeah. But the trouble is he's not gone until there's an election and he sees the war as part of his survival. So I would say ceasefire probably this week. Uh, I would almost say almost certainly this week, but you using words like certainly is 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 um, I, you know it might come back to bite me. But there is uh, in the end uh, the death toll in Gaza, the destruction in Gaza. Who's going to rebuild Gaza? What Gaza will be there? And in some ways, because it has been so awful, uh, I would hope that longer term that there is now. Uh, that the, the the need for a two uh, a, sol- a political solution a two sta- state solution will emerge, but there's so many moving parts and we're still uh, very far away from it. But I think the Americans privately have been putting pressure. Now, of course, what they haven't done is uh, withdraw some, uh, mil- military support. What they haven't done is sanctioned. I, I heard. Um I was listening to Richard, is he Haas or Haas? Haas, Haas, Haas. On, a, on a podcast. Yeah. And he was saying, this is not how allies behave. If, like, we're yeah. acting like they're ally and they're just doing what they want. Ex- like, this is, yeah. you, can't, you can't do this. Exactly. So the idea that the Americans, act, uh, you know, haven't really tried, but the trouble is they, they're being ignored by the Israelis. And of course, the longer term is, will Israel now face, apart from the international court cases, will they face sanctions? Will there be a review in the EU of the association agreement? But the EU is so split that I'm not sure that you can get to that kind of review. So Ireland and Spain are calling for it, but then there are other countries uh, adamantly opposed to that. So it's... Now, the one thing that has not happened, there's been some overflow into the region, both Hezbollah and the Houthis uh, and the Gulf, but it hasn't been, the the, the Middle East yeah. could have gone up. So Iran and America very determined that 
yeah. this is contained. And yeah. and that it's been fraying around the edges, but but we should be very uh, okay. glad that it hasn't become a you know a, an even bigger catastrophe than it is. Yeah. Derek, you looked at this, this piece too. There's, there's a sense in this piece, and I was getting it watching the news channels last night as well, that Hamas are under pressure at this stage as well from, and, and to, to, to do something towards stopping this situation. Yeah, what you've, if you look back even before the, the, the appalling events of the last few days and the attack on the food convoy, etc., is that Hamas was the one who seems to be pushing for a deal uh, that is probably based on the reality that they just know that the people there can't take any more and this cannot be sustained and that it's Israel who's playing hardball on this and just doesn't want a ceasefire. And you see this argument repeatedly, Rishi Sunak during the week saying, well, look, you can't have a ceasefire because that just plays into Hamas's hands because this allowed them to rearm and to regroup, etc. I don't think there's a lot of regrouping can be done when you look at the level of devastation in Gaza. I'd agree with an awful lot of what has uh, been said there. But just, uh, just to tell yeah. me, you have a certain amount of experience. In well, well, we could take back a long time, the rest, but I've been, I've been to the, the West Bank. I was in Israel a couple of years ago. I was involved in Glen Cree um, doing a programme where we were bringing over Israeli and Palestinian politicians and kind of not get education, but just kind of putting them in front of key players in the the Irish peace process and saying, look, we don't have a route map here. We don't have a formula here. But these are people who will understand what you're going through and you you can maybe learn from that. And we'd had... Were they a different breed as well, a different generation of, of politicians in the Middle East? Um, well, what, uh, they, although he didn't come over on the visits here, one of the people I've met at the time was one of the chief Palestinian negotiators, Sai Barakat and uh, Hannah Hashwari. And they, they maybe a different generation because of what they had gone through, because of their experience. And I don't think it's generational in terms of the young people. It's what you have experienced and what yeah. you've, uh, you've seen. Um, and Bridget's right in terms of like the two-state solution is the one that's on the table. But Israel hasn't always been the greatest advocate of the Israel solution. And quite, quite often it hasn't been because its definition of the Palestinian state is one that does not control its borders, does not control its foreign affairs and does not control its defence. Um, and I, and I, well, it, well, when you look at the map of it and you say, well, look, you've got the West Bank over here, you've got Gaza there. How can you run a country? How can you have a state that's not contiguous but doesn't join up? That's the least of the problems. It is the fact that Israel wants to control the external relations of it. And that's where the kind of the, the problems around the two-state solution, even the most liberal and the most progressive, um, somebody like Yitzhak Rabin, who was killed by an Israeli far-right person because they were saying he was giving away too much, but he wouldn't even go beyond that point of recogni- of, of giving Palestine it's, it's, it could control its own external dimensions. But, 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 but back to in the interests of the security of Israel, he had he, it wasn't completely unreasonable. Oh, no, no, that was, that was his argument. But it is, again, which is the greatest security for Israel is peace. The greatest security for Israel is actually having a, 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 an interlocutor in the, in, in the rest of the region. Yeah, and what you're as, seeing I, is, as you, I heard, I think it was Yuval Noah, Yuval Noah Harari Harari. said last night, we have to, Israel has to offer these people a better future yeah. than Hamas does. And yeah. that's the only answer. And that is and that is the way out of it. And and it's it's in both it's in both countries' interests. It's it's in both places' interests. Yeah. And that that that's the that Palestine can be the entry point for Israel to the Arab world and vice versa. Tanya Um, Ward, you picked this piece as well. Yeah, I mean, what really stood out for me and, 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 and the reason why this, you know, is focused on it is this week in terms of social media, I've never seen so many dead, starving children uh, come through. And I know it's been very hard for the UN to get a grip on how many children are actually dying from starvation. 
But if you look at the underlying figures, that before Hamas went in and massacred those people on the 7th of October, there was about 500 aid trucks going into Gaza every day to feed the people. After that, about nine trucks a day were getting in. So that just tells you how long this problem has been in creation. And of course, it's a real military strategy is to, st- is to starve the people. So we're looking at collective starvation. I think we're seeing the end of it. I mean, he, I, I think the numbers of people that are dying now is so high. That's why the US government probably started dropping in food. And it is extraordinary that they're still fueling them with weapons. They're killing them with the weapons. Uh, and at the same time, they're trying to drop in food and create catastrophe. I mean, and it's been, if you watch people trying to get, get there was like 300,000 meals to try to drop in. Uh, people are starving and desperate. They're awful scenes to see. It's so hard to watch, to be honest. And I can't help but thinking about, you know, apartheid and all these other things that happen. And people ask him, why did this happen? How did this happen? We, we all knew it was happening at the same time. And it's all because it's backed by the US government and it's just not good enough. I am hoping that with Biden hurting in the polls it'll have some impact on the decisions that he's making on the ground um, but you know I, I, I do feel we have to do our best in Ireland in trying to put pressure on the American government in this regard. Wendy? Yeah I, I have to say I was quite frustrated with some of the reporting today because I, I felt one piece was even um, a sympathetic and I think one of the reasons for that is, you know, the journalist is writing from Jerusalem and what a lot of people might know is that Israel requires international journalists who are reporting from there, who require the protection of the military to basically put their work through them. It has to be approved. So... Are you sure of that? That's fairly open reporting going on from Israel. Like, like there's no journalists inside in Gaza. If if you have, if you go, if you enter Gaza with Israeli protection... Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So if you go into Gaza, yeah. Okay. So in terms of just, I suppose, what we're hearing from what's on the ground, I think sometimes what we're hearing back is, is more of a, a soft take. But what's most uh, urgent right yeah, now... Yeah, no, look, I'd wonder, like, what we're hearing from the ground is, milit- is, is, is uh, mitigated through Hamas, actually. So I think what we're hearing from the ground is, is not, from Gaza is not biased in favour of Israel. Okay, well, I, I, I think when you look at it from the broader perspective, Brendan, it's a case of why then okay. is it not taking more of a centre stage issue? And when you look at the polling today, it's certainly falling to the bottom. It's like 3% of Irish people, it's an issue. What's most important right now is that we need to get food and water into Gaza. And even with the airdrops that are happening, there is, you know, a, a in terms of getting air clearance, trying to get to the northern part of Gaza, that is proving quite difficult. Um, and at the moment, that's the most urgent action right now. I think that maybe peacekeeping troops with neighbouring countries need to work to surround border crossings and try to force those borders open to let aid in. That's probably one of the most pertinent things that could happen. Yeah, briefly. One of, the, the, one of the issues about the border crossing is there's, there's a big fear amongst Palestinians that the, the actual purpose, that what the intent of the Israeli government is to force people out of Gaza yeah. and it's to force them across the border yeah. and, to, and to depopulate Gaza. Now, the human instinct is, look, get these people out of there. But that's giving giving the Israeli far right what they want, which is to get Palestinians out of Gaza. And And that is terrifying. And just to finish up. Yeah, the Egyptians don't. I mean, the Egyptians are adamantly opposed to that for two reasons. A, that it would suit the Israelis, but also it it could destabilise Egypt. Egypt. And we these are very fragile states yeah. all of them okay yeah. okay now uh there's a poll in the sunday independent today and uh, you've picked various aspects here um 
Bridget, would I start with you on um, the front page, Michelle O'Neill, now the most popular leader in Ireland? Yes, so I I, I think that uh, firstly, she's the first uh, non-unionist nationalist to be first minister in Northern Ireland, and that is of immense historical Import. It's not just symbolic, but uh, a state that was created to have a permanent unionist majority has clearly no longer, that is no longer the case. And that's really important. But I also think she started very well. I mean, going to Windsor Park and she's, she is certainly behaving as the first minister for all of Northern Ireland. As she had promised to do. As she promised to do. And I think that's hugely important because reconciliation is the toughest game and it, it matters that she not just says it, but does it and respects the tradition. So I think I also think it's interesting that she is outperforming Mary Lou Macdonald by such a margin. Yeah, I'll just give people the numbers on that there just for so So uh, the approval of uh, party leaders, um, Michelle O'Neill is 55% approval. Uh, she's new to it. Uh, Michal Martin, 47% approval. He's up four. Holly Cairns, no change at 41% approval. Leo Varadkar, up three at 41% approval. Mary Lou Macdonald, down one at 39% approval. Ivana Bacic, up two at 33% approval. Patter Tobin, down three at 27% approval. And Eamon Ryan of the Green Party is up five at 25% approval. And that was a text-based poll conducted on Friday and Saturday, March 1 and 2 when the sample size was a uh, thousand and eighty three with a margin of error of plus minus three percent. So even with the margin of error, Michelle O'Neill Derek is uh, is looking very good at the moment anyway in terms of the public opinion, isn't she? Absolutely. Or, and again, I think it's because she has so far exceeded expectations. And uh, she's proven herself very, very adroit, and her comments have been very, very good. None of that, but and even take the day that she and Emma Pengelly were elected as uh, first deputy first minister, um, which is a joint position. The, the deputy doesn't really apply in that one, but that they both of their statements were very well crafted, almost to the point you would start to suspect that they were that there was some com- communication between the DUP and Sinn Féin on, on, on joint messaging and it's very, very effective and they've done so since then and you say a couple of events that they've jointly attended. I think there's also a huge relief in Northern Ireland to have an executive back up and running again and have an assembly that's starting to function now but they've huge issues in front of them. They have a massive finance issue facing the, yes. the executive and there is going to be a lot of tough decisions to be made. So it's how uh, Sinn Féin and more importantly Michelle O'Neill can actually use that political capital to get through some tough decisions. But the point to bear in mind is is that political popularity of a leader doesn't transfer into votes at an election. If it did, Fianna Fáil would have won an awful lot of seats without the last election. It didn't. And it's not going to the next time either, but that's a separate matter. But it, it's, which is party, people like the party leader, but it doesn't mean they're going to vote for the party brand beneath them. And there's a lot okay. of Fine Gael people who like Michal Martin. There's a lot of Fine Gael people who don't like Leo Varadkar. Um, but it's not necessarily going to affect how they vote the next election. Yeah, Tanya, you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it's interesting, I suppose, the, the lower approval rates for Mary Lou. And I wonder what will happen uh, when, I suppose, the, the political parties are getting going. I mean, this is, they're walking into the general election. So you'll see them kite flying their different ideas for the general election. You'll see the, the profile being much higher. And I wonder what the polling is going to look like, actually, uh, after we see the Arfeshes coming up uh, and, and seeing what ideas are actually hanging with the public. But, you know, looking at the North, you know, there's massive, massive issues for children and young people yeah. and w- really want to see what they do. They have really high levels of child poverty. 
access to mental health services is a massive issue there and huge levels of joblessness actually in, in local working class communities particularly unionist communities and high levels of exploitation by criminal gangs who are former paramilitaries some really complex okay. problems So this there. is all going to start coming into yeah. the frame now yeah. at the moment it's going to matches and looking good and symbolism and all that kind of thing Um Bridget, uh, we in terms of the politics down here, there's a kind of related stories there, but uh, one you picked is uh, Matt Cooper in the Business Post. Green ministers all on the back foot. Yes, and if if you look, the polls aren't uh, aren't that good for the green ministers either. And I think it's interesting that the Social Democrats appear to be outflanking them, which means the Social Democrats could well be the third the swing party. In the next, after the next election, in terms of government formation. But in terms of the Greens, so Matt Cooper's piece looks firstly at Eamon Ryan as Minister for Transport and Dublin Airport. And there was that press conference during the week where Michael O'Leary had cut out cardboard of both both, uh, Eamon Ryan and Catherine Martin. And basically, he's making the point that uh, Eamon Ryan is taking taking a hands-off view of the extension of the increase in numbers in Dublin Airport from 32 to 40 million and saying he shouldn't wade in as minister. Uh, And it's up to Fingal County Council. But Ireland is, we're an island, we're entirely reliant for international connectivity on air and some some sea, but mostly air. Uh, And uh, despite the fact that it is both a climate issue and a transport issue, I don't think a country like this can afford to have its major airport just simply not functioning at the level the 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 society and the economy needs. Okay, and I suppose Eamon Ryan's arguing as well that we could we could bump up our regional airports and yeah, use but, that a bit more. But but every single strategy of regional development in this country going back to the nineteen sixties has never delivered the utopian. Of course, the 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 provincial airports have a role to play, but the reality is. The growth pole in Ireland is Greater Dublin. Derek, before we move on from uh, party politics, you picked uh, a piece in the Business Post. There's an interview with Pascal Donoghue. Yep. Um, the headline is uh, Sinn Féin poll slide will continue. But really, it's Pascal Donoghue making his usual plea for the centre, isn't it? And saying, look around the world. Yeah, no, it is. And and, and like Pascal is extremely good on this on this, uh, this this issue with the rest. And this has been a drum he's been beating for a long time. And you can see this is where Fine Gael sees the way forward for themselves. Uh, one so, of the that, that, so that change uh, is going to be one side of the argument and their argument is going to be stability. Yeah. And, and it's not always change that, that you need. And there is a don't change horses in midstream. There's a whole string of... Uh, phrases that we use and that and the rest of it is well begun is half done and or half done is well begun. Yeah, a lot done more to well, do. Yeah, yeah, a lot done there. more to do, which was uh, which was the version that that came out of a face of, of uh, a discussion group that Fianna Fáil got its slogan from, and it's a, it was a really powerful one and it caught the mood at the time. But what I actually found was fascinating is that it's described, I think, as a uh, a bold prediction. And um, that Pascal only says that Fine will probably get more than thirty three seats after the next election. Well, there's 16 extra seats in the doll. If Fine Gael gets 34 seats, it effectively has lost three. If it gets 35 seats, it's effectively lost two. It would need to get 38 or more to actually increase its seat total. So saying that, oh, we're getting 33 or more seats. That's not, but that's, I think it's management of expectations. And because the one thing that's consistent across all the polling 
is that whether you see whether you say whether do you think Fianna Fáil's at eighteen percent or twenty percent or whatever, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are both below where they were at the last general election, and that was a bad result for both parties. Sinn Féin is above where it was at the last general election, nowhere near as high as it was last year and at various points, but it is still ahead of that, and that means their seats changing and their seats moving from the government side to the opposition side. Okay, I'll just give people the the um, part stated the parties in that poll today. Okay, so Sinn Féin is at twenty seven down two. Fine Gael up one at 20%. Fianna Fáil up one at 18%. Social Democrats up two at 7%. Labour no change at four. The Green Party up one at three. Solidarity People Before Profit down one at two. AIN2 down one at two. And Independence and others 17% and they are down one. There's, now, another, there's another question that, the, that, they, that um, the Ireland thinks and the Sindo poll constantly asks us, which is your preferred choice of government. And this is the fourth so choice. Yeah. yeah, Fianna Fáil this is the fourth choice. And in that one, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are up. Because oftentimes what you find in the poll that party support isn't the indicator of the likely voting intention. Mm. It is that government satisfaction and what kind of government do you think is going to come in. Yeah, and I think so, that, would so be, that would show some good news. The fourth Fianna choice Fianna Fáil, Fianna uh, yeah. for Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Green, the existing government, which I think the Sinn Féin-led government excluding Fine Gael and Fianna fall were ahead in the last yeah. one it's now 43% up 5 for the current government yeah. whereas it's 39% down 4 for a Sinn Féin led government excluding uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Okay well look the um, the actual uh, big political question for the next week now um, is the referendum and um, Tanya and Wendy you're both on opposite sides of things here so if we start with um, the the, the uh, amendment on the definition of a family. So, Tanya, you have picked um, Michael McDougall in the Sunday Independent. Reckless constitutional changes will only cause uncertainty. Yeah, and I suppose what what Michael here is pointing out and what he's concerned about is, is what is the definition? Because the wording that's being proposed is to introduce, uh, I suppose, unmarried families into the constitution, broaden the definition of the family in the constitution from married families to unmarried families. And the wording that's used is, is durable relationships. And he's kind of concerned about how this is going to be interpreted in practice. Now, you know, I have a very different view and I've talked to a lot of different legal experts about it. And I suppose that the first reason why you're you're adding uh, this uh, terminology to the constitution is, you know, there are a lot, 40, about four in 10 children at the moment are being parented by unmarried and unmarried families and they're not protected in the constitution and the definition of the family. Uh, And you have lone parents raising... Are they protected in law? Uh, yes, elsewhere they are, but they're, they're not recognised as a family under the constitution. Um, and what this amendment will do is it'll, you know, governments will have to be, be sure not to discriminate against them into the future. But it also includes lone parents raising their children and cohabiting couples. But one of the things I think that is missing from the coverage and missing from the debate is the focus on the married family and actually on marriage itself because the wording is very clear. It's very clear that it's still privileging uh, married couples. So it basically sets out and says that the state will guard uh, the, uh, the married family from uh, from a, a attack. And how that's going to be interpreted is it means married couples who would choose to get married even for taxation, social welfare, succession, 
they will have better rights than cohabiting couples and they'll be protected into the future. And actually, the government will be able to continue to, to discriminate against unmarried couples. I think that's been missed and I'm surprised people haven't supported that more. But the other thing coming through is, I suppose, uh, that the concern about these ordinary everyday situations, which are, to be honest, bread and butter from all the family lawyers. And the one that always gets people uh, their, their backs up is what happens if the husband goes off and has an affair or another relationship um, what happens if that woman tries to get a share of the household and the truth is these cases happen every day of the week there's legislation dealing with it and actually the courts deal with it the family lawyers deal with it and this referendum has nothing to do with that this, all, this is all dealt with by legislation and by the politicians Okay so Wendy you picked the same piece actually Michael McDool and you would be uh, for voting no on this aspect of it. Yeah well I think what he's trying to highlight in the piece is just that there isn't a proper definition of what is a durable relationship and with Which will come in the courts. We're but told. you see, in, that, that's the problem. So it's left up to the courts to decide. Now, um, the Referendum Commission has said, no, there'll have to be legislation. It goes back to the government. So they're even confused when they're trying to explain it to us. There has been 16 hours of discussion on this. That, that Through a freedom of information request, we haven't gotten what happened at those meetings, what were the minutes of it. Um, so basically, we're being asked on, to vote on something, on a definition on something that we don't know what it is. Um, there was, I, I saw another commentator saying it's like asking, you know, the government is building a house without the plans and showing you the plans afterwards. So how are we meant to vote on something that we don't understand? In Michael Would McGill's, you disagree with a broader definition of a family? Well, I think that if we understood what we were voting for, then we could vote for it, but we don't. We're kind of feeling our way around in the dark. What he says in the piece is... Um, Everybody knows whether or not they're married. Nobody knows he's in a durable relationship unless, of course, society. The point is, is that there is a beginning to that relationship and if it ends, there is an end. So how, what do you put on your tax return? You know, if you're in a durable relationship, what does that fall under? You know, what do, what, you know, how do you, in terms of the implications of social welfare, pension, allocation of family assets, how does that work if, ultimately, what is... What are you looking for? It says there's rights associated with declaring to the state that you were in, let's say, a durable relationship. Yeah. That's saying there is consent in this relationship. This is the relationship has begun and I'm declaring it to the state. That's otherwise what we would call marriage. You know, that's what a, that's what a legal marriage is. It's, it's you want I, the state I, I to be. I suppose though that like this will allow also for single parent families who don't have. But the we don't know that, Brendan. We don't know that is that going to fall under a durable relationship, and that's the point that um, the former Attorney General Mike McDill makes is that what happens in that situation is you know you have someone who's who's in one durable relationship and then moves on to another, and there's it's it's just that it's so messy. Um, I think it's it's kind of hollow virtue signalling that is going to create more, going to hinder more than it's going to help. Um, it's a recipe for just chaos on uncertainty as to when does a relationship begin? How does it exist? And also, our, def- our understanding of a durable relationship could be totally different. I might feel I'm in a durable relationship. But the person I'm with might feel totally differently yeah. to me. The, the, okay. the only okay. thing is that the stated purpose of it is to actually provide recognition to lone parent families and for but those... But why do they not but, say that but then? They ha- but they have said it. I mean, they said it and the next step, Electric Commission is right, the next step now is for the government will have to take on board the people vote for this and I, I really do, I hope they do po- uh, vote for it because to be honest, the reason why we 
we are calling for yes vote is for those four and ten children who aren't recognised in the constitution. I don't want to have to tell those children if we get a no vote the implication for that and what it means for them. But the other thing, so all of these scenarios, they're meant to be I, I dealt with let Wendy by, yeah, by, leg, by legislation. Um, and just remember, in terms of the courts, the courts are very cautious, very deferential to the government. Uh, expect nothing controversial from our courts. Okay, I Wendy, believe the children's rights referendum gave those children that protection. But then the other thing that we're not probably talking about either is that is it going to be a disincentive for people to get married in the first place? I mean, well, should we, we know that historically um, um, marriages... Would, would that be a problem? Well, I think that when you look at all of the evidence uh, is that marriage is good for society, it's good for children, it's good for families. Yeah. Um, that's that's in no way to not recognise other families, but it's it does deserve, I think, support and recognition. And okay. why would we not want to encourage the, the, that? OK, listen, yeah. we'll move on to care, OK? okay. So, um, Tanya, you uh, picked uh, Colin Murphy's piece in the Sunday yeah. Independent. We can replace an empty promise on care with one that may do some good. Will it do some good? I think it will do some good. I mean, the, the first good it's going to do is deal with some outdated language reflecting women's role in the home or as a homemaker only. If you, if you think about it, when it was included in 1937 constitution, um, there were measures around that time being introduced before that constitution, after that constitution that was passed by plebiscite to take women out of the workplace, take them out of the plum jobs in the civil service, um, make sure that they weren't going to be paid equal pay for doing the same job. You know, there were situations where women weren't actually paid the children's allowance until the 70s. Women couldn't even buy a washing machine on their own. So it's part of that culture at the time and the truth is it has done nothing okay, for women. It, it didn't directly cause any of that though. The marriage bar was pre-existing No, no, no. Uh, it's, yeah. part of, it's part of the you, you overall it's approach a, in relation to women. Philosophy. That's it. I yeah, suppose okay. the, uh, lots of change has changed for women actually. The huge levels of equality legislation has come in. It's changed women's lives in Ireland. But the one thing that hasn't changed is what the constitution says for women. And, I suppose and what will this do for well, people, I, for yeah, carers I think Well, it gets rid care. of that outdated language. And I think that's important because the Constitution refers to women's duties in the home and that does upset a lot of people. But the important thing about the new care amendment, and they could have just gone for a full deletion, but what they have done, what they have gone for is actually recognising care and valuing care and recognising care is carried out by lots of people in the home. So it's the mams, the dads, it's the aunts, the uncles, uh, grandparents are raising their children, uh, foster parents are raising their children. It, so it takes a much broader perspective and what it will do I mean it does put a moral and political pre- uh, pressure on the government to deliver something here for carers uh, if this is passed and I that, hope that it is passed That drive yeah. you think is a, is a strong put, enough word do, I, Well I tell you I, 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 I'd like it to be stronger but to be honest what I do think it will do is 50 organisations are going to walk in next week into the government if this passes and they're going to demand a care package and if the government doesn't deliver a care package this year and the run up to a general election I think it'll have serious consequences for them Okay Wendy Yeah I think that um, to have in the constitution that the common good can't be achieved without women as empowering. I want to be a voice for the majority but of women. But women's duties in their home. No, that with the common good cannot be achieved. That's pretty powerful stuff. But I would like to be a voice for the seven in ten women who say, I'm not being oppressed by being a mother in the home. I am choosing it. And the majority of women, the most recent piece of research says, 70% say, if I could afford it, I would like to 
be with my children. I would like to raise my children. So the pendulum has swung in the other direction. Thank God we're in a new era where, of course, I'm a working mother. I can do whatever job I like. But now we have women that feel they, they are forced. They're, the Constitution isn't doing its job because it says that we shouldn't have to, by economic necessity, have to work outside of the home if that's what we want. But so, that's exactly so so what I've never this is, done anything but that's, for that's anyone why this in, is an opportunity. in reality anyway. This is an opportunity. This is a clarion call to say we're not letting the government off the hook because I have got more messages on this issue um, into the show than any other. And one of them that pitified it for me was a um, woman who texted into me and she said, I tried for 10 years to have my child and now I can't afford to be with her. So many women are frustrated at, you know, lobbyists and uh, women of a particular, you know, kind of elitist group that are only pushing their agenda and ignoring the silent majority of women who want to be at their at home with their children for a certain amount of time. Who and already and the, how, the, how does that relate? To this, though, because we're trying to take the the one recognition for a group of women that already feel undervalued. Yes, I would have loved to see the language be updated and include fathers, but that explicit recognition of the work that women do in the home—it's another for me. Hearing a lot of the discussion on it, it's another slap in the face for women who work at home. It's a shaming, it's a guilt tripping, and you hear that from women all the time. If they're if they are caring for their small children at home, that they're made to feel like, well, this is a disservice to the the sisterhood somehow, um, and. You know, and the other thing that's important to point out when you talk about um, duties in the home is that for women who are working full time, guess who's taking over those duties? Other women who are often paid very badly. Um, I think that getting the constitutional protection for the women who want to stay at home is something that we should fight for. Um, and okay. I'm, I'm, I, I was very disappointed to hear that there was small groupings of, of women. They call themselves the silence because they're women who are working okay. in the home and they feel they don't have a voice. So I'd let Tanya back yeah, in for a I mean, briefly. Like, it's actually not taking women out of the home. Actually, what it's doing, it's including other people who are caring for children and families in the home in this new definition. Uh, and it's trying to reflect the reality of people's family lives at the moment. Their dad's playing a role in the home. And Actually, we want them to play a bigger role in the home and make okay. it easier. Okay. Okay. And, and make it fathers. easier. And that make would it fantastic. Yeah, I, I thought that as well. Do you know, and my instinct was that. But then, of course, we have 150 member organisations, and some of them represent okay. kinship carers, foster carers, and they wanted language that was a bit more neutral. Okay, so guys, I have, well. I have to leave that there because yeah. we are uh, on the clock. But uh, Derek, as a as a neutral broker here, you picked <laughs> Kevin Cunningham's piece. So without uh, without favouring any side of so, Things here in the Sunday Independent, uh, he's got poll results there. He's saying uncertainty could lead to a referendum surprise yet. Yeah, I think it, 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 I've been involved in a couple of referendum campaigns on the non-government side. So I was involved in marriage equality. I wrote the playbook for the marriage equality campaign in the, in the early stages. And it was always fairly clear that that was going to pass on the polling. But I was also involved in the Shannad campaign where we were opposing the abolition of the Shannad, which was being pushed by the government. And every poll showed that this yeah, Shannad was going to be abolished. Every single poll. The Monday before polling, the polls were showing that this is going to be abolished. And on the day, uh, we, we won by about two and a half, three percent, maybe even slightly more. And so there is something unusual in polling. And that's what Kevin is getting into in his poll, which is at the moment, if you were to look at the polls now on both family referendum and the carers referendum, it looks like it's going to be passed comfortably. And he's saying... That's not necessarily a misreading of it. We have to be careful about overinterpreting it because turnout is going to be very important. And there is a kind of conventional thing that people who don't know vote no. 
Um, Kevin and there's is actually a huge very, amount of undecideds. Yeah, and that's reason, and that's if you if you look at the actual the movement has been, which is the yes side and both and, and both totals down. Now so is the no side. More people are moving into don't know, and and that's I, and it's but it isn't that don't knows don't vote. It is the motivation of the people who have decided. So of the people who have decided no. A lot of those are far more strong in the no camp than many of the people who are saying that they're voting yes. In terms of this priority for them, their understanding of the issue, okay. etc. Now, this is how they define it. It's not how anyone else is OK, I better give the figures suggested in yeah. that poll, which is um, in the, the uh, durable relationships um, definition of family. 42% yes, down five, according to this poll. 23% no, down six. But 35% not sure or won't vote. That's up and then in terms of the um, recognition of a woman's life within the home, the recognition of care, 39% vote, voting yes, according to this poll, uh, minus 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, no is at 24%, minus 3. And again, 36%, not sure, won't vote. And that's up 12%. OK, we're going to leave that there and we're going to take a break. Wendy Grace, Tanya Ward, Bridget Laffin and Derek Mooney are staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Our panel still with us. Wendy Grace is broadcaster on Spirit Radio. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Bridget Laffin, Chancellor of the University of Limerick. And Derek Mooney, Public Affairs Consultant, former Government Advisor and former Fianna Fáil strategist. Um, Bridget, RTE is still in, in the news. Um, they, you know, people will say they're sick of it. Then, they, 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 according to the Sunday Independent today, they had added that into their poll. People aren't sick of it or some aren't. But anyway, you picked Alison O'Connor's piece. Um, and Alison was here last week talking about this. RTE is in clear and desperate need of political support, not interference, she's saying. I thought it was a very a good piece and a very well-argued piece. And I thought it was interesting. She started with Michael McGrath and said that he had, in a sense, got it wrong in terms of the fiscal council and the way in which the chair should be remunerated, but backed back because it was political, you know, could be seen as political interference. And then she goes on to look at RT and the, the core funding issue. Uh, she's also concerned that the, the continuation of the crisis that it's not obvious what might be a fatal blow to the national broadcaster, but that this has to be brought under control for the, in terms of the stability of the organisation. And then she goes on to future funding. And I, I, I think it would be very detrimental to RTE if it came directly from the exchequer. I don't Even think with multi-year planning or whatever so that to lessen government interference? But I, I think it, it's important to break the connection between the funding of RTE and, and the government because if it's done, if safeguards are in legislation, legislation can be changed. And so I... I thought that we should put it in the constitution. <laughs> <laughs> that poor constitution has enough going on at the moment. Uh, but I think the idea that there should be a media charge mm-hmm. and collected by the revenue, because the one very effective institution in this country for collecting is the revenue. I mean, they, the housing, everyone said property tax, the minute the property tax was given to the revenue, compliance is very high. And so I think it's much better. So beyond okay. the licence fee, but I I would personally think that any direct link between government and funding uh, is very problematic because so, governments inevitably 
public broadcasting is hugely important to the framing of issues, to the political agenda. It is very difficult to stay one removed. Yeah. yeah. So I thought this was a very good piece. I, I, I agree with you on, on the funding model, but I, I just don't think RT is going to get where it needs to go without public funding in, in addition to it as well, because the licence fee, there's never enough of it for the size of our population, for what they actually need. And, and public broadcasting is probably a bit bigger than RTE as well. It happens in other uh, other outlets as well. But at, like, like Alison O'Connor, I am deeply concerned about this story going on and on and not being dealt with, because in my line of work, in human rights work, the public broadcaster and, you know, good information is really important. You can see time and time again when stories are done by RTE, the change it has. And I remember when Lee's Cross happened, with the abuse that happened in those nursing homes. The Irish Human Rights Commission, as it was then, had done a report. It actually yeah. was out in the open. Okay. But it was only when Prime Time <coughs> actually exposed that the public understood it and they got the political attention it needs. And I do worry about all the stories that are being missed at the moment because, because RTE is not being resourced properly. And you hear it, you hear the sentiment. You talk to people and they tell you, yeah, we're missing stories. We're missing and things that are really important for the public. Wendy, you picked a piece uh, which is in the Sunday Times, yeah, also in the Sunday Times, RT executives face official screening of income under reform proposals. So this is the, the packer bringing out their report. Yeah, so basically it's Tuesday. going to be a 70-page report from the Public Accounts Committee. There's going to be 20 recommendations for reform. I agree with Tanya. I think there's been a lot of distraction. Obviously, there's been a lot of focus on salaries and exit packages, but ultimately that's been distracting from the real business of reforming the organisation. What is the point of a public service broadcaster? Obviously, it's to provide public service. Now, the reason that it's warranted that that a public service broadcaster gets exchequer funding is because good investigative journalism is expensive and doing it right is expensive. And it's not it's not a commercial operation. I think there needs to be more of a focus on that, on how the money is spent, how much is spent on actual public service broadcasting. Um, but I can understand as well why there would be frustration from other media organisations saying, well, hang on a second, you're getting exchequer funding because of the level of viewership and listenership you have. You can demand quite high advertising funding as well. And you're still going to the government with the begging bone. You, st- you still need a payout. So there does have to be a real scrutiny on the actual efficiency of the organisation coupled with looking at are RTE fulfilling its role in creating enough quality public service broadcasting? Okay, Derek, briefly before we move on, uh, do you do you see this stabilising at all? I wish I could, but I don't. Um, and I just think the events of the last week and the loss of a chairperson is just making it worse. And and you, the, 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 there's a decision to make here, and this has been in the ether for years. I mean, it goes back to Dennis Knox and Commission Amount, a whole range of things. And you kind of go, like, who has the political capital to make a decision on this? And that appears to be expended. And this has been expended last week, whether it's in the studio here or whatever else, or questions on the Cinder or whatever it was. And it, it, that's, that a decision has to be made. I think Bridges' right, which is the model you suggest there, is a, is a fair one. OK. But it, but, okay. It, but a decision needs to be made. This, this is just dragged out. OK, look, to what we've been talking about now, I do want to get to housing, OK, because there are a, a number of interesting housing stories in, in the paper today. Um, Bridget, would you maybe start us that you picked the front of the business post, high-risk housing will not be built due to dire water shortage. Yes. So again, for me, that, 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 that's both relating to housing, but also our inability in this country to plan the big infrastructure projects properly and to execute in a timely manner. So the Commission on Housing is saying, and it's, it's a very strong body, I mean, it's got a lot of expertise, is basically saying that the, the, the 
the greater Dublin area is now entirely reliant on the Liffey. That's very dangerous in terms of anything happening uh, and that there needs to be a supply. And of course, the Shannon comes into play. And then people in Tipperary object to the fact that the Shannon might be used to, to provide water to Dublin. But that's entirely normal in countries that you take the source of water from where it is. But I would go back to the fundamental point that until we get and the children's hospital again is the archetype, we need to strengthen our capacity to plan and execute and manage major infrastructure projects. We're no longer a poor country. We are, our population is increasing and we're, that part of the state is one of the weakest. OK, Derek, uh, a kind of a lie to that. John Drennan in the mail um, is writing about 21,800 new homes stuck in planning and legal quagmire. And there's pieces across the papers yeah. today, right? In the Business Post, builders are saying we can scale up. But uh, but that, the problem, there's a financing issue and then planning does seem to be a big issue as well. There is, but it, it, at every stage of this, there seems to be an issue or a problem. And, that, and by the way, there's a growing acceptance and just looking at the, the front, at looking at page six of the Sunday Business Post, which is we need, the target needs to increase to 50,000 per year. And, I, and we, we know the population is increasing. We know that Ireland is an attractive place to work. But one of the big disincentives, and I work with companies and on the HR side, um, and that, that's one of the difficulties is actually attracting people to work in Ireland because the cost, the, the reputation has got out that Ireland's an expensive place to live. And you cannot have a housing model where it costs twice as much to rent as it does to buy. And that's effectively is. If you're in an apartment that's valued at 350, 400,000, your mortgage in that would probably be about 12, 13, 1400 a month, but your rent is going to be 2,600 at a minimum. That, that's just a, that's not a model that would work. And it's making it more difficult to people to get on the housing ladder. So, but, but the problem is as we build houses, we may find ourselves that we'd have a we have a rental problem and we have a generation rent problem where we have people get stuck because they can't get deposits to build yeah. houses. Brandy, you're and it's, it's, it's that capacity generation, and you're nodding avidly there. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm looking at you know it's all well and good to put out targets, but you know if you don't have the infrastructure in place, yeah. take for example where I live, the population is going to go up by fifty percent in the next five to ten years. Where is that? It's in Shankill in Dublin, eighteen. Yeah, and. Next to me is Cherrywood, which was a social development zone, which did have the infrastructure and plans in, in place in terms of schools, etc. Now, when I contacted some local councillors about this increase in population, saying already you can't get into schools, children aren't waiting lists, there just isn't enough practical stuff, GPs, all that sort of stuff. The response I got back was absolutely laughable. In other words... It's great for a politician to be able to say, well, X thousand units were built in this area in my constituency. But if the infrastructure doesn't follow, then there's a okay. whole host of other problems. So, that come so, so if we move on at slightly maybe up from generation rent, you're saying that young families are also experiencing the brunt of this in a different way, even if they have secured a house. You finally yeah. get a house and then you find you're in an area where that doesn't have the infrastructure to actually help you live out your family life, whether it's pressure on getting a school place, just general kind of amenities and even green space. You know, a lot of the developments I'm like traditionally housing estates when I grew up, you had your big green the in green, the centre yeah. where the kids That's would where play. It all happened, well, right? That's where it all yeah. happened. Some of the developments that I have seen across Dublin, there is lit, it is the minimum amount of green space. It's not designed with families in line in mind and with family life to be able to flourish. And I, I think that there has to be so much more pressure put on local councils to put in proper plans in place. I don't think 
as soon as there's a certain number of units, there surely should be an SDZ in any area. Wendy is so right on this. This is what the core problem is in Ireland. There's an article here by Killian Woods where he's talking to all the developers and he's asking them, you know, the government's target is 50,000 houses. What can you produce? And they're saying, we can't do more than 33,000. And this is symptomatic of the whole problem when we look at housing. It's all built around the developers and what they can do. And what's missing in Ireland is a proper planning approach. Like, why Vienna has had such a successful approach in developing affordable housing is they plan their housing around children and women, actually. All the rules are in in relation to children and women. That's how they do it and they get it right. But the other thing, though, and, you know, there's a thread all the way through all the papers. Uh, If you look at it, O'Gorman, they need to build refugee accommodation. You see Tusla spending 70 million. Uh, Padre Tobin has kept the focus on that relation to children in care in in, in special emergency arrangements. Because the other thing that we're devoid of in Ireland is we don't plan all the other types of housing that we need for different communities and we're all competing. So Tusla has uh, social workers you know, on the phone trying to find accommodation. Uh, Department of Children has officials on the phone trying to find accommodation when actually what should be happening we should have one department responsible for all of it planning out accommodation for all the different people that need it. Okay, we'll take a break. Wendy Grace, Tanya Ward, Bridget Laffin and Derek Mooney staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Okay, welcome back. Our panel with us, Wendy Grace, Tanya Ward, Bridget Laffin and Derek Mooney. Uh, I have a text here from Chris. So far during the show, I've decided to vote yes, yes, no, no, yes, no and no, yes. Bottom line, having a clue, suspect I'm in a silent majority and that's from Chris. Um, Wendy Grace, you picked a piece from the Sunday Times um, by Julianne Corr. Call for safeguarding measures to protect child influencers. Tell us about child influencers. So basically, child influencers are just at the university. Uh, Francis Reese launched this particular project and basically she found the impact of digital child labour. So this is children under 13. So the first thing to point out is that these platforms that these children are influencing on, you're meant to be 13 or older. So that's the first problem. Okay. And then the second thing they found is that parents were earning six figure wages from their child influencers. So that's one element to it. The other element is obviously who are the influencers influencing? I mean, there was a story the other week about... Um, the New York Times did a big uh, a big investigation into this, didn't they? And there's a lot of men accessing uh, th- these things and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and also just the fact that, um, obviously, big where, where big businesses, money to be made, you have things like children as young as nine and ten peddling things like anti-wrinkle creams, you know, talking about get ready for me to go to yeah. school is a trending thing on TikTok at the moment. Again, nine and ten-year-olds. Young kids are really into skincare now, aren't Aren't they? Were they always or is this a new thing? Look, my memory of skin, I didn't certainly didn't think of anti-wrinkle cream until I was in my late 20s. My first memory of makeup was glitter gel at about 16. It just, it's something that didn't concern me, but on most of my peers. But at the moment to think of, well, first of all, again, nine or 10 year olds on a platform that they're not meant to be on till they're 13. Yeah. And they're watching people like um, Kim Kardashian's little girl, West, I think. Her, no, North. North, North Kardashian, West. sorry. Northwest, Putting up her, you know, skincare routine and she uses yeah. a particular product and yeah. all of a sudden hundreds of millions of that product is sold. Obviously, there's the thing of, well, this isn't suitable for the child's skin in, in the first place, but the pressure that these children must feel that they're taking part in this trend 
And now we see that, well, parents are capitalising on the money that's being made. So there's so many different layers to this. One, I feel from a parent's perspective, we do need a little bit of supporting one, one another and collective cop on with, with what is happening on these platforms. But there does need to be better legislation and accountability in place from these platforms because these influencers had hundreds of thousands and, and millions of yeah. followers that are under 13. How are they allowed on it in the first place? Tanya, we've a short bit of time left. It's a massive issue, to be yeah. honest. Uh, and it's having such a negative view on how children and young people view themselves. I mean, I don't let my children look at Instagram but let me sit beside, right beside them because I know they're hammered with ads and images of people that are promoting things that are just not achievable. And it's not right. I mean, it, it, it's cosmetics alongside plastic surgery as well and injectables and all the other yeah, stuff. Yeah, they call it baby. Botox. Yeah. There's a name for it at the moment. Yeah, baby Botox. Oh, how old are they having Botox? Well, this is about women kind of in their early 20s and it's oh, yeah, and having preventative kind of prejuvenation. But you have older well. teenagers talking about it and thinking yeah. about it that this, I need to do it now. Or so lip fillers and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Prejuvenation, is that? That's the new thing. Okay. And, and so much so. <laughs> so, so head so, head, head aging off at the pass. <laughs> you miss out on that, Brendan. <laughs> right, okay. Um, well, listen, on that bombshell, uh, we'll finish up. Thank you wow. very much to my excellent panel today. Wendy Grace, broadcaster with Spirit Radio, Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, Bridget Laffin, Chancellor of the University of Limerick and Derek Mooney, Public Affairs Consultant and former Government Advisor and Fianna Fáil Strategist. We sorted it all out there.